Today we're looking at chapter 5 of the book of Daniel, if you'd like to open your Bibles and read along in just a bit. I also want to let you know that if you're looking for some additional resources to help you with your study of Daniel, my wife Donna did a two-part overview of the entire book of Daniel for the Tapestry Bible Study a while back. The links for those two top podcasts are printed on the back of your bulletin this morning, or you can find them at thecornernj.com. Donna's a great Bible teacher. She taught me everything I know, so uh, check those out. You know, it's been said that if you want to communicate something important, tell a story. Stories have the ability to reach people in a way that mere facts cannot because a good story engages the heart, the emotions, the imagination. The American novelist Ernest Hemingway was once challenged by a friend to write a story with only six words. Hemingway thought for a moment and then scribbled out on the back of a bar napkin a tragic story composed of only six words that sets off your imagination to fill in all the blanks in between. His story was this, for sale, baby shoes never worn. So simple, yet so full of pain and bitter disappointment, a terrible life tragedy in six short words. Chapter 5 of the Old Testament book of Daniel also tells us a story of a terrible life tragedy. You know, the Bible uses stories to touch our hearts and instruct us about the ways of God, to teach us how to live for Him through positive examples that we should follow or through negative examples whose errors we should avoid. So far, we've been following the positive example of Daniel and Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, and the mostly negative example of the king of the vast Babylonian empire, Nebuchadnezzar. Happily, Nebuchadnezzar's story came to a positive conclusion last week in chapter 4 as he finally bowed his prideful heart to the greater power of God. Now his story is done. After reigning over Babylon for 43 years, he finally dies in the year 562 B.C. As chapter 5 begins, another 23 years have elapsed since the end of chapter 4. So about 70 years all total has passed since Daniel and his friends were first taken captive in chapter 1. So Daniel isn't a teenager anymore. He's now in his 80s. The Bible gives us scant information about the years in between, but other ancient historians and sources paint the whole picture. After Nebuchadnezzar died, the empire went into a steep decline. He was followed by his son, Amel Marduk, mentioned in 2 Kings 25 and in Jeremiah 52, as the one who released the Jewish king Jehoiachin from prison and gave him a place of privilege in the Babylonian court. Amal Marduk rules for only two years before he's assassinated by his brother-in-law, brother-in-law uh, Neri Glisar. Neri Glisar is mentioned in Jeremiah 39 as the official under Nebuchadnezzar who helped get the prophet Jeremiah released from prison, and he ruled for only four years. And he was succeeded by his son, Labash Marduk, who was only eight or nine years old. He only lasted nine months, tragically, before he was beaten to death during a coup. One of the conspirators in that coup was named Nabonidus, and he was appointed king. And Nabonidus was a shrewd customer. He married one of Nebuchadnezzar's daughters to connect with the family lineage of the royal family. And so his son, Belshazzar, would have no rivals. He saw to it that all the male children who had any right to the royal line at all were clubbed to death. Nabonidus was so nervous about being assassinated in Babylon that he moved his palace as far away from possible 
to a place called Tema in the middle of Saudi Arabia. And he installed Belshazzar as his puppet king in Babylon while he lived in voluntary exile. You know, sometimes people question the historical accuracy of the Old Testament. And one of the contention spots was this guy, Belshazzar. Critics said there was no archaeological evidence to prove that he ever existed, so the, the Bible must be wrong. That idea was taught in universities for decades, trying to discredit the Bible until, again, archaeology proved that the Bible was true. Archaeologists discovered a, a drum-shaped clay cylinder that was etched with the cuneiform letters called the Nabonidus Cylinder. These clay cylinders were how kings recorded their history, and this one was all about Nabonidus and it mentions his son Belshazzar, confirming the accuracy of Daniel. It's now on display in the British Museum in London, one of thousands of artifacts that provide historical confirmation for the reliability of God's word. But as Babylon declined, another man named Cyrus was gobbling up the world. He was the king of the Medes and the Persians, and he had set his sights on Babylon. Eventually, he meets up with Nabonidus, and his army about 50 miles south of the city of Babylon, and Cyrus just destroys them, takes the king captive. And the Medes and the Persians then surround the city of Babylon with the puppet king Belshazzar trapped inside. That's what's going on as we begin chapter 5. And I think this history is important if we're going to really understand the impact of what we're going to read. Let me start chapter 5, verse 1. King Belshazzar gave a great banquet for a thousand of his nobles and drank wine with them. While Balthasar was drinking his wine, he gave orders to bring in the gold and silver goblets that Nebuchadnezzar, his grandfather, had taken from the temple in Jerusalem, so that the king and his nobles, his wives and concubines, might drink from them. So they brought the gold goblets that had been taken from the temple of God in Jerusalem, and the king and his nobles, his wives and his concubines drank from them. And as they drank the wine, they praised the gods of gold and silver, of bronze, and iron, and wood, and stone. And suddenly, the fingers of a human hand appeared and wrote on the plaster of the wall, near the lampstand in the royal palace. And the king watched the hand as it wrote. His face turned pale, and he was so frightened that his legs became weak, and his knees were knocking. The king summoned the enchanters, astrologers, diviners, and he said to these wise men of Babylon, Whoever reads this writing and tells me what it means will be clothed in purple and have a gold chain placed around his neck. And he will be made the third highest ruler in the kingdom. Then all the king's wise men came in, but they could not read the what writing or tell the king what it meant. So King Belshazzar became even more terrified and his face grew more pale. His nobles were baffled. The queen, hearing the voices of the king and his nobles, came into the banquet hall. May the king live forever, she said. Don't be alarmed. Don't look so pale. There is a man in your kingdom who has the spirit of the holy gods in him. In the time of your father, I mean your, your grandfather, he was found to have insight and intelligence and wisdom like that of the gods. Your grandfather, King Nebuchadnezzar, appointed him the chief of the magicians, enchanters, astrologers, and diviners. He did this because Daniel whom the king called Belteshazzar, was found to have a keen mind and knowledge and understanding and also the ability to interpret dreams, explain riddles, and solve difficult problems. Call for Daniel, and he will tell you what the writing means. So Daniel was brought before the king. 
Thanks be to God, for this is his holy word. The writing on the wall. Have you heard that ominous expression? Well, this is where it comes from. The warning from God to Belshazzar. His city is surrounded. So what does he do? He throws a massive party. 1,000 nobles, the cream of Babylonian society, all invited, no cover charge. Along with their wives and concubines and counting the waiters and guards and everybody else, the total crowd could have numbered well over 8,000 people. That's quite a party. The party was the king's way of diverting attention from the dire events outside the walls. It was a massive morale booster meant to lift the spirits of the whole city. You know, when the going gets tough, throw a drunken party. Sounds like a beer commercial. It was an all-day, all-night affair, course after course of food. Wine, women, and entertainment flowed freely. It was a drunken orgy of the worst kind. At some point, he decided to bring out the gold and silver goblets that had been stolen from the Jewish temple in Jerusalem some 70 years before. And as they drank from, from the Jewish temple's most holy goblets, they broke out in songs of praise to the gods of Babylon. It was an act of intentional blasphemy against the God of Israel, praising instead their Babylonian gods of gold and silver and the rest. Honestly, Belshazzar's actions, they're not that unusual. I mean, what do people do today when they're faced with a huge crisis? A lot of people try to drink it away, party it away. I mean, that's very true in our world. Maybe on a smaller scale, but it's, it's the same kind of thing. People are stressed out. People are facing constant problems, so they turn to alcohol as an escape, a way to numb the pain of what they're facing, and that's how they've learned to cope, a drink to calm the nerves, and that one drink isn't necessarily a bad thing if you can stop there, if you can stop with one, and a lot of people can't. They need that next drink and then the next one to take the edge off to make it through the day or through the weekend. There are a lot of functional alcoholics in our area, kind of teetering right on the verge of disaster. The party, they need that party as an excuse to drink. In fact, they can't have fun unless they are drinking. Do you know anybody like that? That's when you know you've got a problem, when you can't have fun without drinking, when you can't cope without that drink in your hand, when you start drinking by yourself, that's when you know. Same thing goes with prescription drugs. So many folks use prescription drugs now to numb the pain, those painkillers that you saved up from your knee injury, the sleeping pills, the other meds, a dangerous combo when mixed with alcohol. You know, the current epidemic and heroin use in all of our towns right around here is mainly from people who started abusing prescription drugs and then they got addicted and then heroin is just so cheap comparatively speaking and disaster follows right behind so on a side note parents grandparents be sure to clean out and secure all your medications so your your children your grandchildren your house guests you know don't get into your medications and believe me it happens all the time so Belshazzar, he just wants to party and forget that reality in the form of King Cyrus' army is knocking on his front door. The other thing he does by using the temple goblets, he's kind of putting on a show. He's puffing up the power of his false gods. He's making this, this grand gesture, foolishly of course, but he's trying to say there's nothing to worry about. Our gods can handle this wolf at the door, no problem. And so he's in denial. He's in deep denial. He can't face the supreme gravity of his situation, so he tries to block it out. 
He's got this false confidence in his own power and the power of his false gods. That sounds pretty familiar too. You know, kind of rely on your own strength, your own abilities, you, your own power, your wit, your personality, your connections to get you through. Don't acknowledge the elephant in the room and, you know, maybe it'll go away. And God, God is a last resort for weak people. I don't need God. I can, I can handle this all by myself. But suddenly, God crashes his party. Without warning, some disembodied hand begins to write on the wall of the banquet room. I mean, no body, no face, no torso. Just some fingers writing on the wall. And when the king saw the words, the color just drained out of his face. At first he thought he was probably seeing things, but there was dead silence in the room because everybody saw the same thing. This was no illusion. This was no mass hallucination. So his knees buckled. He almost collapses. And then just as suddenly as it appeared, the fingers vanish. But the four words remain on the wall. What did they mean? Like Nebuchadnezzar before him, the king called for the astrologers and enchanters. Offers them wealth and power if they can interpret the sign, and they, they couldn't, of course. And then his wife, the queen, remembers a name from the distant past. She says, call for Daniel. Daniel, now in his 80s, he's served the king's court for the majority of his life. He's called before this, this drunken, despot, puppet king to explain the meaning of this mysterious handwriting. He proceeds to give the king a history lesson and then a theology lesson. He reminds the king of what had happened to Nebuchadnezzar when he became arrogant and his heart was full with pride. God humbled him. He lost his sanity, ate grass like a cow for seven years until he acknowledged that God was sovereign over his life and over his affairs. And then starting in verse 22, it says this, But you, Belshazzar, his successor, have not humbled yourself. Though you knew all this, instead you have set yourself up against the Lord of heaven. You had the goblets from his temple brought to you, for you and your nobles, your wives and your concubines, to drink wine from them. You praised the gods of silver and gold, of bronze and iron, wood and stone, which cannot see or hear or understand. But you did not honor the God who holds in his hand your life and all your ways. And therefore he sent the hand that wrote the inscription. And this is what the... And this is the inscription that was written. Mene, mene, tekel, parson. And here's what these words mean. Mene, God has numbered the days of your reign and brought it to an end. Tekel, you have been weighed on the scales and found wanting. Perez, your kingdom is divided and given to the Medes and the Persians. And then skip down to the last verse in the chapter. And that very night, Belshazzar, king of the Babylonians, was slain. And Darius the Mede took over the kingdom at the age of 62. The king should have known better. He should have learned from the past. He should have, he should have learned these lessons of history, but they were lost on him. Daniel's explanation of these Aramaic words is short and very to the point. Mene means numbered, and God had numbered his days. His number was up. Tekel means weighed, and God had weighed his life on the scales of justice, and he'd come up short. Parson means divided, and his kingdom is about to be broken into pieces. The mysterious words were a message from God that Belshazzar's reign and his life were over. 
Reminds me of the parable Jesus told in, told in Luke chapter 12 about the businessman who kept building bigger and building bigger and bigger barns, but who neglected his soul. And Jesus gave these stark words of judgment. You fool, this very night your life will be demanded from you. It is a sobering word from God. The party is over. The end of the story comes quickly. The army of the Medes and the Persians, they'd encircled the city for months. And as you may recall, the Euphrates River flowed right straight through the city of Babylon. Cyrus's army had secretly worked to divert the river into a nearby lake. So that they lowered the water level just enough so that his soldiers could swim under the walls of Babylon and then open the city's gates from within. They stormed into Babylon, killed Belshazzar while he was in a drunken stupor that very night. It was October 12th, 539 B.C. There's a lot of history in today's story, and it's an important history. As the saying goes, those who do not learn from history are doomed to repeat it. And more than 40 years earlier, Daniel had told King Nebuchadnezzar that Babylon would be replaced by the Medo-Persian Empire. Belshazzar knew what had happened with his grandfather. He knew but he ignored it. He just, he just repeats the same mistakes. It's this pride, this hubris, this unyielding spirit, this arrogance, this aura of entitlement, of excess, of disdain for others. All of it can be summed up in the second half of verse 23 where it says, You did not honor the God who holds in his hand your life and all your ways. That's the key verse in this chapter. I hope you have it underlined. You did not honor the God who holds in his hands your life and all your ways. To honor means to treat with value. And that's one thing Belshazzar did not do. He did not see the value of having a relationship with the one true God. He thought he was good enough on his own. There's a cycle repeated in scripture that describes both individuals and nations. At first a person or a nation recognizes the sovereign blessings of God, is thankful for those blessings... But as time goes by, they begin to take those blessings for granted, begin to forget where those blessings came from, begin to believe that they did it themselves, and God says, okay, have it your way. He withdraws his hand of protection and blessing. Things begin to slide until there's an avalanche of trouble. A life crumbles, a nation falls. Maybe they cry out to God, and maybe he's willing to try again. Maybe it's too late. What happened to Babylon may also happen to us. Search through the rubble of history. See the great nations, great empires, great leaders. They come and they go. The tendency of every great nation is the same, to begin to believe that we will always be a superpower, to slowly push God out of the picture, to take him out of public life, to forbid the mention of his name, to ridicule those who still believe in him, to promote those who exalt humanism, to create, uh, uh, to chafe at, chafe at absolutes, to live by our own set of rules. Over time, people take God for granted and they turn to our new idols of technology, begin to worship things that we make with our own hands. In the end, God judges. And note this biblical fact. Judgment often comes at the hands of another nation that God raises up for that very purpose. Here's the main point for all of us this morning. If God were to write a message on the wall for you, what would it say? If God were to write a message on the wall for you, what would it say? God scrutinizes every human heart. He looks not only at our outward actions, but also at our motivations, our thoughts, our dreams, our secrets. 
Everything is laid bare before him. Nothing is hidden. So how would God number and weigh your life? Would it be said that you honor and treat with value the God who holds your life in his hand? I know that some people think that God will weigh their good deeds versus their bad deeds, and if their good deeds outweigh their bad, they've got their free ticket to heaven. That's a nice thought, but it's a false one. If you dare to stand before God on your own merit, claiming your own goodness, if you presume to offer God your good deeds as your entry ticket into heaven, you're making a huge mistake. In that day, you will discover that your sin is like a mountain weighing you down and your good deeds like a pebble by comparison. The fact is God has written you a letter already in the Gospels and he signed it with the blood of his son. God's message says this, I love you. That's what he would write on your wall, I love you. And you need someone to stand in your place on the scales of justice. You need my son, Jesus Christ, to take your place. You need a savior, a substitute who never sinned in thought, word, or deed. By his perfect righteousness, he fulfilled the law of God in every detail. He succeeded where you failed. And because he died in your place, you can have this new life beginning right now. If you stand on your own merits, you will be found wanting. If Jesus stands in your place, you will find a new life that begins right now and carries on into eternity. The book of Daniel is a sobering wake-up call. It is not a light and fluffy part of the Bible. It's got an edge to it. In Daniel 4, a pagan king was humbled and then radically changed by God. In Daniel 5, another pagan king was judged and then slain in the same night. It reminds me of what was said about the two thieves who were crucified on either side of Christ. One was saved that none should despair. One was lost so none should presume. Just as God humbles proud kings, he will do the same to us. So honor with your life, with the way that you live, with the way that you treat people, the things that you say, your attitudes and your actions. Honor the God who holds your life in his hands. Amen. Let's pray. Lord, this is a tough chapter in the Bible because it shows that at some point you don't mess around anymore with people. That there are times coming when our sins catch up with us and the ways that we've dishonored you do have consequences. So Lord, help us quickly turn to you to bend the knee before you and to acknowledge your sovereignty over our lives and to thank you that our lives are in your hands and to joyfully throw ourselves into your hands, trusting in the good love of a Savior named Jesus Christ, in whose name we pray, amen.